Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sachs's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University, and I'm also your host for this program. Today, I'm pleased to have Dr. George McClellan at the University of Mississippi and Dr. Judy Marquez-Kiyama at the University of Arizona as our guests. Thanks to each of you for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Absolutely. Michelle. Before we get into your work and career, can you tell listeners a little bit about who you are outside of work? Could be hobbies, things you're reading, watching, listening to, whatever you're interested in sharing. And George, if you wouldn't mind starting us off. Well, thanks. Um, and it's great being here with everybody today. I will say everybody who knows me knows I'm a geek about higher ed and students. And so people would laugh at this question because I this, this is my life. This is what I do. Uh, that said, occasionally... I lapse into stuff that doesn't have to do with higher ed. Uh, I like blues. I like music in general, but I really like blues music. I used to do some work with alligator records and whatnot. And, and I just, I love music. Um, I like noir detective stories about cities that I know something about. So noir detective stories set in Chicago or New Orleans or Vegas, San Francisco, cities that I really know. Uh, I like those a lot. And um, like finding local great places to eat. I, I hate chain chains with a passion. Like I always want to find local places. Um, don't watch a lot of TV. Last great TV addiction was Game of Thrones. People knew not to call my house when Game of Thrones was on. Um, reading wise, um, and Thea Butler has a book called White Evangelical Racism. I don't know if either of you have read it, but mm -hmm. I highly recommend it. Highly recommend it because I'm one of those people that was kind of asleep at the wheel. I'm not a person of faith, so I wasn't tuned into all that stuff. And to me, it felt like, wow, that came out of nowhere. But Anthea does a great job of going, no, if you'd have been paying attention, <laughs> like this is the history. <laughs> um that, that I found that book to be really useful. And um, this is a little older, but I'll share it just because of people. Sometimes people, when I first said I was coming to Mississippi, people were like, what are you doing? Where are you going? Why are you doing that? There's a great book by a guy named Richard Grant called Dispatches from Pluto, which talks about moving to Mississippi. It's brilliantly written. And if you want to have a fun, light summer read, it's about moving to Mississippi, but I think it's about moving to anywhere. Mm. He, he embarks on a career change with his wife, and it's a wonderful story. Hi, the writing is delightful, highly recommend. Thank you so much. I think sometimes I ask this question, so I have more things to read and watch and listen to, but I appreciate those recommendations. How about you, Judy? I'm writing I'm writing George's mm -hmm. recommendations down for reading down for me too. Um, I, I love, love, love reading. And so on the weekends, if there's downtime, that's what I'm doing is um, digging into a book. And I realized a couple of years ago that, um, that I, that I went a full year without finishing an entire book. And that for me was shocking because it was a good indication to me that my life was a little bit <laughs> unbalanced and I wasn't prioritizing the things for me that included you know, rest and care. And for me, reading is part of it. And I'm, 
I'm so fortunate that my kids are little bookworms too. So we'll spend, you know, a few hours every weekend, just kind of cuddled in bed reading. Um, I brought the book I'm reading right now. It's by Ross Gay. And it's, I know people can't see this, but the cover is beautiful too. And it's called Inciting Joy. And it's short stories about the ways in which we, we find, um, we find elements of joy even when there is great tragedy and sorrow um, and that everyday activities can bring us joy as well. We don't need grand grand gestures and grand activities that it's surrounding us. And um, he's teaching, he teaches at Indiana uh, University as well. He's a poet, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. I spent the whole first chapter crying. So I highly recommend it. Um, but that's one of my favorite things to do is when I'm in new cities, I will go find local bookstores and then come home with books, um, always books, never never e-readers for me. Um, and especially if I can find locally owned women of color bookstores, that's, that's fantastic. Um, so that's a favorite thing. Um, I mentioned my kids. I have an 11 year old and a seven year old and they keep us super busy. Um, my seven-year-old just started a basketball league at the Y last night. So that's been fun watching a bunch of seven-year-olds trying to figure out how to play basketball. But um, they keep us going. And that for me is always the priority is making sure that I'm I'm giving time and space to mm -hmm. them and with them. And uh, during the summer, that means lots of swimming and lots of things outside with them. So. I love that. I actually have a nephew who just finished his first basketball season. I think it was the third practice he went and he asked the coach if they could do something besides basketball. <laughs> so, I mean, um, it was so funny last night watching the, some of these kids can't reach the, the rim when they're shooting. And so, you know, it, it's going to be, it's going to be fun watching their games. <laughs> Well, that's great. Well, let's start to shift, you know, into student affairs and higher mm -hmm. ed. Um, and Judy, if you want to start this time and just tell us a little bit about your story, navigating things and, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. Um, you know, the University of Arizona has a longstanding summer bridge program called the New Start Summer Program. It's, gosh, it's, I think it started in 1969. And the the goal when it started and it actually started because of um student activism and and students requiring it and demanding it and um that is relevant of course to our conversations with student affairs now um student affairs today um but the program was set up to serve first generation lower income students of color as they transitioned into the university and um, I participated as a student and then worked for the program in a number of different capacities as a as a graduate student and later as a student affairs professional. But that was my first taste, right, of we can do this as a profession. Like we there is a way to work with students and serve students and get paid for it and build community and create opportunities for them, particularly for minoritized populations who maybe didn't realize this was this was a path. And um, I remember following around the coordinator at the time, Rudy McCormick, thinking, I want his job. Like, how do I do this? And so that was it. I mean, that for me was the, the opening of this is what I want to do. I want to be on a college campus. I want to work with students. And as I was finishing my PhD and still working for the New Start Summer Program as an assistant director, 
um, realized I, I can be a faculty member and prepare the next generations, right, of student affairs professionals and still be connected and still, still have that, um, that passion kind of, um, I don't know, the fire of that passion created, but in a different way. And that, <clears throat> that for me was the turn to go into faculty life and, and to work closely still with student affairs folks, but to do it in a way where we get to, we get to be part of the next groups that come through. And I'll be going into my 16th year as a faculty member next year. Um, and still for me, the, the passion is still working with minoritized populations and the students, students give me so much energy. That's the, that's the joy, right? The, to go back to and say, enjoy, that's the joy. Wonderful. Thank you for that. How about you, George? So I'm one of those people that didn't start out to be in student affairs. Um, and there's a lot of us, right? And and we have stories like the one that Judy shared where somebody somebody or some situation changed the way we looked at things. So I was a first-gen college student, right? It took me five years to graduate, way before it was fashionable. Um, and um, I just... I, I didn't know what I wanted. I thought I knew what I wanted when I started college, but that turned out not to be what I wanted. And then I was clueless because the reason I went to college was because I wanted to be educated. I wasn't one of those people that went to college to get a job. I went because I thought being knowledgeable was cool. Like that's what I wanted to be. And uh, uh, so I got out, I, I like I was doing stand-up comedy. I was touring with musical acts i was tending bar uh on the north side of chicago that's what i was doing I, you know like i didn't really know and a, a job came open at northwestern where i got my bachelor's degree and i i was doing some stuff there on their chicago camp and students started to say to me they really liked what i because i would talk to them and i would listen to them and i would provide encouragement and you know advice and support and a smile and remembered their name and remembered to ask them how their day was. And uh, I was doing student affairs before I knew it had a name, <laughs> you know, and uh, and students started to say they really liked it. And so I, you know, I kept doing it. And uh, then, then, and we'll talk later, I think about mentors, but along came Peggy Barr and she taught me that you could actually think of this as more than a gig. You could think of it as a, and more than a job, but as a profession. And so that was my turn into it. And then almost from the earliest days, I was really lucky to have great mentors. And, and I thought that I wanted to be a student affairs vice chancellor. And uh, at some point thought I wanted afterwards to move full-time faculty. But I always saw those like I taught as I went along, you know, because I, I think of it all as teaching and learning. And uh, th th those of you who've seen me around conferences, I ran into some health issues. So you've seen me with a cane or a cart. And, and that led to not being a vice chancellor sooner than in life than I thought was going to happen. Um, but life, life hands you some pretty cool stuff. And so I, I made the move to full-time faculty about five years ago. And I've been incredibly happy. Like, you know... And and when I was in student affairs, it was about the students. And as a faculty member, it's about the students. They're always the best part. Uh, and now as a faculty member, it's it's me and the students. Like I don't, you know, some of that other stuff that was maybe not so attractive as a vice chancellor, 
<laughs> I just don't do it anymore. Uh, so that that's that's how I'm here, and I'll be doing this as long as I can do it. I I as long as I think I've got something to offer students, and as long as they'll be kind enough to let me share in their lives, then that's what I'll do. Right. Well, and you kind of set up the next question perfectly. You both alluded to people who helped you find your way. Um, and we always talk about how small student affairs is. And my my imagination for this is that people are listening going, oh, I know that person too. And so again, sort of reinforcing those connections. So who have some of your mentors been? And George, if you want to start this time, who have who've been, and I know the list is probably longer than we have time for. So if you want to just highlight a few folks that have been important to you. Well, I'm going to, It's this is like the Academy Awards, right? You, <laughs> the danger of starting a list, right? Some people who've been really important. Stephanie Waterman is one of my sheroes. She's awesome. Shelly Lowe, uh, Teresa Powell, rest her soul, was really important to me. Um, people like Doug Woodard, Larry Roper. I've been really lucky. Jim Radigan, uh, Dr. Radigan told me, I was in a room once when he told a story about when he learned about the plane crash at Wichita State, that where they lost so many basketball players. And it was decades after the crash and he was crying. And I remember thinking, I want to still care that much about students when I've been in the business that long. Like, I don't want to be one of those people that gets bitter. And, you know, you go to the meetings of people that talk bad about students. I'm like, why are you in student affairs? Um, I remember that moment with Jim Radigan, like crystal clear. Uh, Jason Laker, my friend Jason Laker, it, it really. But, but the people who know me know that beyond a shadow of doubt, I, I am a product of the mentoring of Peggy Barr, Margaret J. Barr. Um, you know, we're here today to talk about the Blue Book. She started the Blue Book, but my whole career path, the idea that I wanted to be a vice chancellor, the idea that I could teach while I was doing it, the idea that I would write while I was doing it, what it means to be a vice chancellor, how you lead. I, I've been lucky. I've, I've had great teachers and great mentors. But if you had to say one person, Margaret J. Barr. Oh, and I left out of my list of people that have made a huge difference. I was really lucky um, this is not a higher ed person um, but uh, Cora Walton Taylor whose stage name was Coco Taylor often known as the queen of the blues was profoundly I got lucky enough to meet her I didn't know she was this world famous star so I just went and sat at her table one night in a club in Chicago between sets and she was nice enough not to throw me out <laughs> and we became friends like like life friends and she taught me a lot of life about life. And so Peggy Barr and Coco Taylor, those are my two. I love that. Thank you so much. Judy, how about you? Oh, that's so great. I love, I love that as you were talking about folks, George, like, and, and this is Michelle, to your point, this, the field is so small that uh, there's so many interlap, overlapping and interwoven, uh, I don't know, webs of community and, um, uh, as soon as you mentioned Stephanie Waterman's name, like all these just beautiful memories pop up. Stephanie um, and I were faculty at the University of Rochester together and developed a 
a wonderful friendship there as well. And there were a group of faculty who we would have monthly breakfasts outside of the institution, right, to make sure that we were supporting each other. And um, if you have never sat down with Stephanie, she is a wealth of wisdom. And so I think I'm so glad, George, that you mentioned her. But, um, you know, for me, Gary Rhodes has always been a key a key mentor. Uh, he was my he was my first advisor in my master's program and has continued to advise and mentor me for 20 plus years. Um, I There's probably not a professional decision that I make without just talking through it with him still. We don't always agree on things and we have a great relationship now where we can we can sit and easily disagree and talk through things. And now I'm, I'm in a situation where he's my colleague um, in the same department that I went through as a master's and PhD student. So that's that's been a fun relationship to see evolve. Um, I mentioned Rudy McCormick as the first person really truly who introduced me to what student affairs could be. And he's also still here at the U of A. He's um, running the early academic outreach office. Um, but I, I wanna tell the story about George because he's been so influential in, in this path over the last 20 plus years. And we were in a class with Doug Woodard together I think, George, I think you may, might have been Doug's TA, and yep. we we're talking about the Board of Regents um, increasing student tuition and the way that it would impact particularly low-income, first-gen students of color. And um, Doug said, you all should go to the Board of Regents and speak out. And, and so I said, okay, I will do it. But I was so scared. Um, I had never done anything like that before. And so George said he would meet with me ahead of time and we met and we had coffee and he coached me and he mentored me and um, really instilled some confidence in me that, you know, I wanted to do these things, but I didn't know how, again, you know, first gen kind of path through and um, didn't know that I could, right? And so George was instrumental in saying, let's just sit down and prep a little bit. And I don't remember what I said in front of the Board of Regents. I don't remember the meeting at all. But I remember the conversation with George and I remember having coffee at the Marriott before the meeting. Um, so George has been incredible in um, mentoring many of us throughout our professions. And he's, I know this is a question, Michelle, that you'll ask later, but he's the reason why I said yes to co-editing because it was an opportunity to work with him again. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you for all of that. I, I think it's important that we kind of know about each other before we kind of get down to business. And hopefully we're doing that in our work, you know, on a daily basis, because that human piece is so important. So we're here to talk about the Big Blue Book. Uh, so the fifth edition of the Handbook of Student Affairs Administration just came out in January, I believe. You correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. And so... The most important, there it is. The most important question is, did you consider changing the color of the cover of the book as you were going through the process? It is a different color. It's a different shade of blue. Okay. <laughs> uh, every time it's a different shade of blue. Uh, no, there's, there is the blue book and there is the green book. And as I think even after we quit having physical books, they'll still be the blue book and the green yeah. book. Um, yeah, for sure. As long as they, as long as they both have an audience and they seem to, and as long as they help people and they seem to, then I, I think there'll always be a blue book and a green book. 
So what are some of the changes to the book this time? What are some of the new pieces or things that maybe have gone by the wayside as you did this most recent version? Well, we had a lot of conversations um, and this was fall of, I think 2019, right, George, when we started this around um, which chapters maybe needed to evolve or what topics needed to evolve. Um, what we didn't, what we couldn't have predicted is that the pandemic would start in spring of 2020. And um, you'll see that thread throughout the book, but not in a way that centers conversations only about the pandemic. One of the things that we talked to the authors a lot about, because that was so fresh in their minds, of course, we were living it as it was being written, um, was guidance around, you know, this, this version, this edition has to live for five or six years. When people pick this up in four or five years, how are they going to read about this current context of the topic and the influence of the pandemic, knowing that we will likely be at least moving through it or move through mm -hmm. it. So it can't be the only, the, like the center of the conversation. Um, that That is one change obviously that, that has showed up in this edition that was not in previous editions because we weren't living through that type of crisis, world crisis at the time with other editions. Uh, but we also talked about, you know, like, what are the conversations that we need to go deeper into? How do we center new voices, criticality in different ways? Um, how has terminology changed and shifted? That was a that was a key conversation that not only George and I had throughout the process, but that we had with the with the authors as well, is recognizing that terminology that we may have used in our classrooms or as a profession or in the previous editions has changed. And we we need to be on top of those changes as well. Mm -hmm. That was one of the challenges with the book. It, um, it takes about three years for the book to, from, from the first conversations about the next edition of the book to when it actually appears, takes about three years. Um, and, you know, that, that, gives it some strength, but it also creates some logistical challenges. Things change over three years. And, and Judy shared a great example, like, you know, every, understandably, every contributing author wanted to talk about what's going on with the virus and how that's hurt, affecting students and institutions. And, and she did a great job of talking about that. So the book, the, I, I've been a part of the book, every edition of the book. As far as I know, I'm the only person who's been a part of every edition of the book. Um, the, the the book has always had a certain set of core things that you don't you you refresh them you update them as Judy said you you think about the language you think about the new theories you think about the new data but there's a certain set of core things that just have to be there because of who reads the book and why they read the book mm -hmm. but then we move stuff in and out based on we're sort of trying to, you know, read the crystal ball or whatever metaphor you want to use and think, okay, three years from now when this is on the shelf, and then once it's published, it has like a seven-year life. So you're kind of trying to do a 10-year projection on what's going to be helpful to people. What are they going to want to read about and talk about and think about? And so that that's part of the conversation. So this time, uh, you know, we, we, 
there's always this core set of stuff and then there's other chat and there's always more ideas than you have room because you have to a book can only be so thick to be bound and you don't want to you know we're always mindful of what the cost is to students for books and so you want to you know there's always that act um but you move things in and out. So this time we we brought in a chapter on emerging models of practice. We brought in a, a chapter on serving students with disability. Our, our, another of our friends from the University of Arizona, Amanda Krauss, wrote a really great chapter. She led this chapter. And uh, we highlighted chapter on men and masculinity because people, you know, where are all the men in college? You know, that conversation because, you know, the patriarchy is under such threat. No, but anyway, um, but, you know, so we, we, we invited Jason Laker to come and write about men and masculinities. And uh, obviously student, we, we didn't think about the virus, but even before the virus, all of us were thinking about the increasing stress that our students were under. And so we brought a chapter back that had been in previous editions on health issues, but we really focused it on mental health. Mm. Um, John Dunkel, Dr. John Dunkel did that for us. Um, we did a chapter on college student employment, how, how campus employment for students can make a difference in learning and lots of things. Um, and we added a chapter that I hope will become part of the core on politics and shared governance, small p politics, because uh, for years and years and years, when we serve, we in higher ed and student affairs survey new grads about what didn't they learn in grad school, they'll inevitably say politics. And now I'm working on a new book on this topic, but but we don't teach small p politics for a while. And so we've added a chapter on that. And my personal hope is it'll it'll become part of the core, but we'll see. It depends on how people resonate with the chapter. So that that's how we pick what's in it and then how we pick who's in it is a related question that you may want to talk about how do we get authors and how do we pick authors because that's also part of the conversation right when the book gets put together why don't we go there now um and and just kind of as you and especially george since you've been involved from the beginning how how were the first authors identified? I know some people come back and write or recraft their chapters from one edition to the next, but how do you make those decisions and invitations? How's that process work? So when the blue book started, it was what I call the great voices, the established voices. Mm. Sometimes I call them the old lions. And the idea was you wanted sort of the rock stars of the field to be the authors, but that had some unintended consequences. Jeremy, when Jeremy Stringer became the co-editor, when Jeremy and I started to, as a team, we did the third and fourth edition together. We started being really intentional about shifting so that the blue book was a blend of what we think of as emerging voices and established voices. And that has continued and I hope accelerated into the fifth edition. One of the reasons I'm so glad Judy agreed to do this project is she's connected to a whole set of scholars that I'm not yet, like I know them at some distance, but I don't know them in a personal connection way. Mm -hmm. And so our networks together were pretty good. 
but we don't just rely on the editors' networks. We reach out, so we talk to we talk to NASPA, who has I don't know what you want to call it. They endorse, they support the Blue yeah. Book. Uh, the foundation get the NASPA Foundation gets half of the royalties of the Blue Book. That was a deal when Peggy Barr started it, and Gwen Dungey was the head of NASPA. And they they agreed that this was a way to generate revenue for the foundation. And all of the editors ever since have all agreed to that. We've all agreed to give half of our royalties to the foundation. So so NASPA has they don't have control, but they have a voice in who's going to be the editors and who, who they we when Judy and I were identified as the co-editors, we one of the meetings we had was with the folks at NASPA, Kevin and and Stephanie, and said, hey, who do you think? Here's what we think the book needs to look like. What do you think about the contents? And who do you think might be authors? We also consulted with faculty colleagues. You look at the literature. Mm -hmm. And then, Judy, talk, talk about how the, the different ways we look at diversity in the authors and how we try to figure out who can write for the book. Yeah, I'm, you know, I think one really specific example is considering not not only um, like demographic diversity, right, racial and ethnic diversity of, of who the authors are, which was part of the consideration, right, bringing in multiple, um, multiple identities, multiple voices, but also how, how they write and how they push our thinking through different types of storing. And so specifically, there's a beautiful chapter that Amanda Ticini and um, Puni Lipe have written around constellations of love and community. And when George and I reached out to them, we just asked them to write about, you know, kind of community building within student affairs settings. And they crafted it from just an incredible Indigenous knowledge systems um, lens and it's so different from what we might consider tra traditional academic, I'm, I'm air quoting for those <laughs> you can't see us, yeah. uh, traditional academic writing. And it pushes our ways of considering how we think about even the writing that our students might do, the knowledge systems that they're bringing in, right? How, how assignments can be crafted, um, all because it brought in a different way of contributing. And I'm so grateful to the two of them for doing that. Um, but, you know, Amanda Cross, we already mentioned, it, it pushed us again in thinking about terminology. And in, in, in the first emails we had with her, she said, I want to change the title from like students with disabilities to disabled populations and really centering the agency in how, um, how disabled students and, and faculty and staff are navigating their spaces. And so it was it was those kind of conversations with folks that really um, allowed us again to get to those more critical spaces of thinking about how how diverse thought, how diverse writing, how diverse knowledge systems were woven into this latest edition, and and that for me was was a great opportunity to bring in some new ways of thinking about how we engage in student affairs. Thinking about people who come from all different kinds of institutions, community colleges, HBCUs, four-year publics, privates. Yeah. I mean, we we. We try to find people from very different institutional profiles. We try to make it a blend of faculty voices and scholar practitioner voices. They got to be good writers. Yeah. 
when, you know, and, and, and we have been really like, good is not that words like good and excellence always, you have to be careful because they come with certain cultural biases and right. And so we try to be very thoughtful about good means communicating and reaching an audience and touching an audience, right? It's not necessarily APA style and, you know, da, 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 da. But you got to be a good writer. You can't be in the book unless you're a good writer. We look for, again, the young lions like Frank Fernandez is in this book. Amanda is in this book that, you know, there are some people that that are like that. And then there are some people that that have been writing for a long time and are pretty well published. And they're in this book. And, and that's something we're pretty happy about. I really hope people, both Judy and I are curious to see how people respond to that chapter on constellations of love. It's something very different than has ever been in this book. Yeah. And it's really magic. Yeah. It's really cool. I, you know, that's one of the things that you'll see. I think with the majority of the chapters, we encourage people to, to pair up. Sometimes we, we, offered who that, that partnership might be in terms of co-authorship and other times they brought in suggestions. So you might see a seasoned student affairs professional with a newer, earlier career faculty member or a more senior student, uh, faculty member with an early career faculty member um, because we wanted to make sure that there were opportunities for folks who maybe hadn't published in this way before to, to also bring in their perspective. Or people from different institutional contexts talking about one topic. Yeah, right. So you talk about um, faculty and uh, scholar practitioners. What what is it like to recruit scholar practitioners when I mean, I think about what being a hall director meant when I was in grad school in a new professional versus what that encompasses now. And I don't see it any of the work getting simpler as we move forward. So what, what does it look like in terms of who's able to commit to the work? What does it look like in terms of, um, I mean, I would imagine a lot of people are interested, but just really making that a manageable process um, for the different types of experiences that you want to bring into the conversation what what does that look like for the most recent edition maybe how has that changed over time it's gotten harder over the years to find scholar practitioners i'm not entirely sure why that is opportunities for publication i mean it's it's a really tough time to be in the publishing business so we're losing publishers right um jossie bass doesn't do exploratory titles. Now, Wiley doesn't do exploratory titles pretty much anymore. They only do the greatest hits, if you will. Stylus is gone. They Stylus was doing all a lot of the innovative stuff. Stylus got sold to Rutledge. Hopefully, Rutledge will fill that space now. But the number of places where you can do new books has gotten tighter. Also, I think people, I'm not sure people are writing as much anymore. I, I'll just say that this is, this is where Judy may need to be the diplomat. I don't think our profession rewards scholar practitioners for being scholar practitioners. I, I will say it. People will not be happy when I say it. I don't think people find a home in ASH. I don't think they find a home in AERA because that's for the theorist and the pure theorist and, you know, 
I don't think we, we, those of us who hire and promote student affairs people, I don't think we give them enough recognition for publishing and the scholarship of practice people because of the cost of books and just the time and the change in the lives of like emerging professionals, right? You know, when we had that whole, we now talk about it, I think in better ways, but we had this sort of unhealthy mentality of, you know, you work and you work and you work and you sacrifice and da da da, and it's all for the students. And now, you know, you hear these healthier voices. You heard Judy earlier talking about balance and like, mm -hmm. that's all good. Part of, I think what people are saying is I'm going to spend that time being healthy and riding a bike and having fun and talking to family and being with my dog or whatever. And I'm not going to write. And the people who do write, I think maybe they're blogging or they're tweeting although not anymore since Elon Musk destroyed Twitter. But I think people are like, so it's harder to find those folks. And this is probably my last time at the at the book, you know? I mean, it, that's going to be up to other people. But I, I hope that people will reach out to Judy and other folks and say, hey, I'd really like to be, you know, when you think about the next edition, keep me in mind, because I'd like to think about it. AI will not write the blue book. Like it, it will not for lots of reasons and it will not write the blue book. Right. I think we need things like the blue book. So I, I, I just really hope we see more scholar practitioners. And I think we need in order for that to happen, we need to do a better job of saying, thank you. I, you know, I, I agree with everything that that George said. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be the the patient diplomat with it. I you know I think our institutions are moving so fast with neoliberal thought and practices and requirements for many of us that this type of work is often not rewarded for scholar practitioners and the time and space to do it is not there when we're being asked to build more and do more and deal more with crises and um, and make money, by the way, and think of ways that we can make money doing these programs. And that that's very heavy, um, as particularly as a brand new practitioner in the field. That's a lot to have to, to weigh. Uh, and so I agree. I agree that there aren't good opportunities and reward structures within our institutions. Um, and I agree that a lot of our professional associations are set up in certain ways that they speak to very specific populations. I also think that we can't discount the fact that the pandemic happened during this writing. Um, you know, we have we have amazing presidents who are authors on, in the book, and we have, um, you know, senior senior scholar practitioners, senior student affairs folks who have been doing this work their entire career. Their whole world shifted in what was the priority, and rightfully so. And so, uh, the attention that people could give this round and this edition looked different, and we had to be patient with that too. Um, so timeline shifted, of course, and the support we offered to folks maybe looked different than it might have in previous editions. But um, you know, we all experienced something that hadn't happened before, and that changed the time and capacity that people had um, as authors. That's how we see the issue. But but I also want to say it was encouraging to see how many really strong emerging faculty scholar voices there were and their consideration of practice in their writing. Right. So although they might not be practitioners, 
they were very thoughtful about practice in their writing. Judy and I are both really grateful for the care that our faculty colleagues took in the way that they wrote. I just I want to be sure to thank them because they they in a time when it was not easy to take on another writing assignment, they stepped up and said, hey, we'll 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 contribute. Well, and that leads to and you alluded to this earlier, Judy, why why did you say, sure, sign me up for three years of doing the work and trying to predict the future a decade out? I'm I'm in for that. What were what were some of your factors? I mean, the easy answer is that it was an opportunity to partner with George. So that was, that's like, that's the easy part. No, it, you know, for me, I'm, I, um, I'm lucky to be at a point in my faculty career where, where I think these longer projects can have more space, right? I, I, I am um, mindful of the fact that this has a, a longer shelf life than maybe some of our articles, um, that it impacts really truly it impacts the profession in ways that are longstanding and I hope profound for some folks and the opportunity to be part of a project like that where we really are creating creating co-creating knowledge um, for the next generation of scholar practitioners and student affairs professionals that's that's a big deal and it's important and I know how important it was for me at that point in my career and so if there's an opportunity to engage and and offer, I see it, I see it not just as like a research and scholarship type of project, but this is service to our profession. And for me, that's that's huge. Um, and then if we can, in the process, bring in new voices and and continue to shape and evolve uh, the conversation, then then that that was an easy yes for me. Mm-hmm. Did you yeah. at any point think, oh my goodness, what have I done? Um, well, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, in the in the process, I also took on a new administrative role. So my the the project has paralleled a three year appointment as um, associate vice provost for faculty development, and uh, both are kind of wrapping up at the same time. And so there were moments where I thought. I underestimated, of course, right? How mm-hmm. how much time the new role would need and the writing. And you know, we made it work, but um, it wasn't because it wasn't because of the project, it was because of what the new role required. Sure. Yeah. Well, and as you reflect, and I appreciate um that you mentioned this earlier, George, that you've worked with this book from the first shade of blue to the current shade of blue. What are some, and and you've talked about this a little bit, but are there other things that you would highlight as far as changes over time, whether it's the philosophy of the book? Um, You talked about who is encouraged and invited in as contributors. Are there other things that you've seen change during your time working with the text? We've touched on the, the things that I think most about the sustained partnership although it has not always been easy there have been wrinkles um between naspa and jossie bass now wiley and the editors that partnership has been a part of the success of the book judy alluded to it this this notion there we're all of us who work on the book 
are keenly aware that it is a resource for the profession. It, it shapes emerging practitioners, but it's also, we hear from people like, oh, I keep that on my desk and, you know, I reach and I remember and I go back and I find a source. And so, so we're keenly aware of that, that that's always been a part of it. I think, I think that the thing that changes is, you know, the students we serve, um, the, the, the knowledge base in the field grows. I'm very glad over the, I guess it's been nearly 35 years um, that we've started, uh, you know, my my criticalist friends, we talk about problematizing things. We we have started to problematize some of the assumptions and some of the structural assumptions. And, you know, so I'm very glad that that's making its way in to the book. When people see the fifth edition, they will see that much more evidently than maybe they have in the past. So, so I think those are some of the big changes. Um, the the other, and, th and this is the sort of behind the scenes stuff. But the other thing is, the, the and and I'm not I'm not saying this to say anything negative about Wiley or Jossie Bass, but they don't promote the book anymore. They don't promote any of their books anymore. They're only working on greatest hits, right? And so the book has to sell itself. Um, its reputation, its history, it has to sell itself was a point at which um, this book and some of the others were seen as sort of creating enough sales that it funded some other stuff that Wiley would do and, you know, to have a presence in the field and all of that kind of stuff. All of that's changed. It, this is, and, and Judy talked earlier about sort of neoliberal logics and stuff. And I, I'm, I'm not in the business of bashing publishers. I think it's really hard to be a publisher right now. And I'm grateful that anybody's doing it. But but in my time over the years, that relationship is much more about the bottom line than it ever used mm -hmm. to be. Wiley used to have people who were in the editorial team, people like David Brightman and others who were really knowledgeable about the field, like they were as much as anything partners in thinking about the book. The partners we have at Wiley now are good at what they do, but it's not. That, like they don't do student affairs they don't do higher ed that's not their thing and so it's a very different relationship than there used to be and that's behind the scenes though hopefully the readers never see that it and, I, and again i don't say that to say it's necessarily a bad thing but you ask what's different that's different yeah. and it's hard the book is still about helping people understand the breadth of what it means to be in student affairs and and to somehow connect our history with our moment with our future mm. like i always think of the book as a bridge there's some foundational stuff that we need to make sure we pass on there's some contemporary stuff that we all need to talk about and then there's some sort of look what's coming down the road or at least what we think is coming down the road heads up you know i think the book still does that you know others can decide i think it does it pretty well but mm -hmm. but that's for other people what what we hear back is pretty positive um and it's and what we hear back is really important to the health of the book yeah have there been and i'm i'm not really trying to stir the pot but always interested in <laughs> storytelling have there been controversies along the way either 
with what certain authors felt was important that may not fit with the larger version of vision for the book or feedback on particular aspects that were included or excluded. Everybody's got opinions. And I'm, I'm just wondering if there are any that, um, I don't know, cause tension in the process. Know that I would name them as like controversies. I think, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I think George, you mentioned this with the last edition. There were feedback from there was feedback from students that some of the terminology had become outdated, right? And so again, that was that helped us to have more upfront conversations around um, how we how we address terminology in this last edition and how we respond to people, knowing that in the process terminology may become outdated again, right? And what some might think is acceptable, others might find problematic. Um, we, had, we had a conversation in the last book, well, the fourth edition, around trans students, which when we were putting the book together, it was like, cool, we're actually going to talk about trans students. That's really important. Seven, 10 years on, now we're hearing back from students who are reading that language and going, that's not the language we use. Well, yeah, because the field has evolved so much, and that's great. But that was really important feedback to hear from people in the community who said, you can't do that again. Like, that's not right. Similarly, um, I don't remember which edition it was, third or fourth edition. But at some point, after the book was out in press, really distinguished colleague who's got a really important voice. Uh, I don't mean that in the sense of power, but I mean the sense of integrity and dignity and value brought to our attention that we had somehow managed to not get Asian, Asian American voices into the book. Felt awful. Like, saw it, recognized it, but not until, like, all the people who had their hands on the book in the course of producing it, most significantly the editors, because it's our responsibility, just didn't catch it. And that person was right to be unhappy with us. And they let us know in no uncertain terms. Like, can't do that again. You're right. So there have been these moments, but it, I, I don't know, in, in all the years I've been, I don't, I don't recall them as moments that sort of, you know, they weren't conflicts in the sense of existential conflicts they were conflicts in the sense of you're stewards of something really important in this field and you have to do it right and then i think there are just differences of like scholarly opinion and who they want to draw from i mean we you know we make suggestions along the way to different authors around you might consider this person's body of work or why don't you weave in some citations from you know whomever, and we we get a little bit of pushback of no 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 that's not the approach we want to take or we we have disagreed or taken a different route with some of this earlier work on this topic and that came up a few times but I don't again I don't think it's controversy I think it's just making sure that we have space for conversations to evolve right and that's that's a really good I think a really good healthy interaction between editorial folk and content creators. Yeah. Right. That's that's why you have that. Mm-hmm. And and we as co-editors 
we default to, I mean, whatever the contributing author is, we, we're, we're not, and it's never happened, but I mean, absent some sort of blatantly just inherently evil, wrong kind of thing, we're not going to override the authors. It, it's their work, it, you know, and we need to respect their work and their thinking. Mm -hmm. We'll ask questions. They'll, they'll, they'll respond. Mo mo often they are really grateful for the feedback, but sometimes they're like, no, I, I, that's a deliberate choice and I want that. Once the book is out, how do you get feedback? Is it, I know a lot of people will just volunteer, you know, and they'll track down your email and send you their thoughts, but how do you, because it almost sounds like as soon as you're done writing one, you got to start thinking about the next one. And so how do you sort of solicit feedback, whether it's formally or informally, how does that find you? I think, I mean, you're right in that people will just reach out directly, but uh, we are, I, at least I have been asking colleagues to use it, the book in their classes and to get feedback from students in real time. Um, so I know, you know, the, the publishers were kind enough to send George and I a giant box of books. And so I have given them to our program and said, use them, like give us feedback, let us know how, how this information is being uh, received and then used uh, moving forward. That's one way. So we asked directly. Um, we are trying to set up sessions like this, right? And with NASPA and others where we can engage with our colleagues to make sure that we're, we're also creating space to have conversations around thoughts and perspectives and feedback and um, critiques. <laughs> so we welcome all of it. Um, yeah, George, I don't think there's been a formal process though set up with the publisher, right? To, to write in or anything? No. In all in all the years I've been doing it, I the only feedback we get from publishers is how does it sell? Yeah. And again, I'm not trying to pick on, but that's that's what they met. That's their measurement of success. How does it sell? Where does it sell? Etc. Right? Yeah. You get feedback by email. You you go to a conference and somebody. <laughs> it's funny because I can remember when I started doing this, and like I would go down the hallway at an ASPA conference, and I'd be like, "Ooh, that's Susan Comovis." Like you'd look. It's that thing where you look at somebody's badge, and you're like, "Ooh, I know that name." And then you're like, "Oh my God, that's Susan Comovis," or you know, "That's Jim Radigan," or "That's Whitlet's Larry Roper," or whatever it is. Now that happens, like people are like, oh, you're that guy. I got in an elevator at a conference that I was at recently and a, and a young lady, she did, was that, you know, look at the badge. And then she looked at me and she, she lit up and she's like, I read your book on budget. And I want to tell you, I love that book and yada, 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 right? It's that, but you also get people who go, you know, next time there should be a chapter on this, that, or the other thing. Um, so what I do, is I, I literally keep like now the fifth edition as people give me feedback, I will start post-it notes okay. on different pages or different chapters and be like, okay, the next time think about this, mm -hmm. think about this, think about this. That, mm -hmm. And so it comes in emails and it comes in conference conversations or uh, how colleagues give you feedback from students. It, it, uh, one of my favorite things is, getting invited to go talk to students in grad prep programs. I love doing that because mm -hmm. you get that direct feedback from them about, you know, you, you find out what are their questions? What, what are the things that they, they're asking you about or that they, you know, that they want to challenge about the book. Um, I, I love that feedback. Mm -hmm. 
One of the things, um, and I, I know you mentioned it earlier, but one of the the changes, and so I have a two-part question with this, the issue of um, politics and governance. So if you want to talk a little bit more about how that shows up in this book, and then I would ask you both to think about looking ahead and if you're like, no, Michelle, we're not talking about the next book for at least another six months. Okay. Um, but if you're ready, what thing, what other things do you think we need to be thinking about to include in future um, editions of the text? So specifically the politics and governance, but then more broadly, what other emerging topics do you think we want to pay attention to to see, yeah, you know, this is something we need to be talking about as people are preparing to enter the profession? I have some ideas about emerging topics. I know, George, you want to talk about the the little P politics. So you can. Well, I just, uh, that was... my goal in talking about this stuff and writing about this stuff is to help student affairs folks do the things they do to help students. Congressman Lewis, before he passed away, you know, he talked about the importance of getting into good trouble, right? And in order for us to engage in good trouble, there, there, I'm also a, a, a big fan of this construct. If, if we, do you know the work around tenured radicals and what it means to be a tenured radical? It comes out of organizational- Tempered radical. Forward behavior right. stuff, right? So what it means is you're inside an organization and you're advocating for change from inside an organization. And there's a whole, anybody who wants more information, holler, and I'll be happy to share it. Judy knows it. It's really good stuff. So in order for people to be able to make good trouble or to, or to be a tenured radical, um, you got to understand power and politics and how that works and persuasion, small p persuasion. And we higher ed, we don't teach this stuff to our students. And also, because higher ed runs or it's supposed to run on the idea of shared governance, if we don't talk about shared governance, and, and when you talk about it in historical and traditional ways, it's faculty and admin, like senior admin. But a more contemporary notion of shared governance includes the voices of students and communities and staff folk and, right, but for you to have really shared governance, you've got to get at these underlying power structures, right? Like, you know, social class and patriarchy and all of that kind of stuff. And so, so trying to help people understand how that, how shared governance can be, could be a, a place where voices could be lifted up rather than oppressed or suppressed. And so that's, I mean, in, in a quick, version. That's why I'm trying to write more about power and politics and persuasion and shared governance. Because I believe one of the things that we do in student affairs is to help our students live their lives and, and develop themselves, but also to help our institutions grow and change in response to the needs of our students. Mm -hmm. And so trying to help new, particularly new student affairs professionals, it could be 
at all levels, but I'm really focused on these new professionals who often don't feel like they have any power, but in fact, they do. They have the power of expertise and they have the power of their unique identities and they, they have the power of their relationships with students. Not that you would ever exploit that like in a using or manipulative way, but the fact they have the palette, they have the power of data. They're close to the data. They know the numbers. Student affairs professionals have more power than they sometimes think they have. Mm. And, and I would like to help those students, student affairs professionals, see what the sources of power are and to think about how they can engage in using that power in ethical ways to get in good trouble, to make good trouble. So anyway, that's 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 my whatever time is left. That is my crusade, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think in uh, thinking about your second question, and it's related, new topics or emerging topics. Um, there's also big P politics, right? That we are are living within, particularly for those of us that are in states that are moving towards what may feel like more restrictive policies around what we can teach, um, what we can do with programming, how certain even words are used, right? Around mm -hmm. diversity or critical race theory or, or intersectionality. Um, and that shifts how we think about our work. It forces us sometimes to be more creative when moving um, work around equity and justice forward. Um, but we have to be aware, right? We have to understand and be aware of what's happening within our state systems as well, especially those of us that are at state institutions because it impacts how, how the work plays out. And so where that's gonna be in five years, who knows, right? But I think we're in it right now of seeing different states um, moving different legislation forward and, and have to consider the impact of, of, of the work in student affairs. Um, We've heard so much uh, about the enrollment cliff and the, the drop and that by 2030, this is going to happen um, and ultimately will impact what that looks like in terms of our student affairs programs and initiatives and preparation. But the flip of that is we're also hearing institutions say, yeah, we're seeing an enrollment decline, but not for Latinx students or not for, you know, so there's, we also have to be aware that we have growing populations, particularly minoritized populations and, and Latinx students in particular, that also then impacts the work that we do. And so to just talk about the enrollment cliff, I think is a only a one part of the conversation. Um, what else? I mean, George mentioned mental health. I think this is gonna continue, of course, be a key topic, not only in how we approach it with our students, but, but with faculty and staff as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing it, of course, be part of faculty conversations. We know we know that new student affairs professionals are much more verbal about mental health needs and concerns. Um, and so I don't think that that conversation is gonna go away anytime soon. I think uh, if nothing else, we have to be more mindful of the services that we're offering for faculty, staff and students around mental health uh, and just general health care needs. Mm -hmm. uh, what else? Um, growing MSIs, growing anapeses, um, Hispanic serving institutions, native serving institutions, um, of course, in addition to all of the, the work and the centering of um, HBCUs and tribal colleges. So I think for me, those are some key topics that we might continue to see conversations around. 
I would, and I agree with every one of those. I would add on 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 the current political stuff, which feels very real and pressing, obviously, and more so for people who are, who who identify as part of those groups that are being particularly targeted, right? Um, so I don't mean I don't say this to say oh just be patient, right? Just be calm. That that's not what I'm saying at all. But I do think it helps to have a historical look at that. This is not the first time that higher ed has been a political football in this country. It will not be the last. So building student affairs capacity for how to, again, be in to, to make good trouble, to be a tenured radical in times like these in particular, I would say always, but in times like these in particular, is going to be really important. And so I, I would love to see down the road, the book have to be able to offer that. And, and we need to speak to the seniors who read the book, the, you know, the senior student affairs officers, but we also need to reach those early career professionals because it feels very different at different spaces, right? Um, I, th I think that's gonna be really important. I also think um, down the road, uh, being able, I, one of the things I don't think we talk enough about in in student affairs, I think we need to do a better job of teaching people about knowledge management, data management, data and, and the control of data and the security of data are a source of power going back to that, but so much more now, a part of our jobs is being able to sort of master the data, right? And I don't think we teach data management in KM enough. And so I'd like to see more of that. I'd like to see student affairs folks know more about what that is. Um, I think uh, down the road, there's going to have to be continued conversations about the, the field, um, you know, for, for we'll see. A lot of people talked about the, whatever you want to call it, the great resignation, the great relieving, whatever they called it. I think a lot of people are coming back. When you look at the labor numbers, you see those jobs getting filled, but it's how they get filled. I've, I've made no secret of the fact I don't like the de-skilling of the profession. I, I am adamantly opposed to efforts that seem to imply that one doesn't need a master's degree in this field. We can have a conversation about what the master's programs look like and what the content ought to be and what the pedagogy should be. But I think our professional associations, or at least one of them is on the wrong track when it engages in trying to offer non-accredited curricular content in competition with graduate preparation programs. I think that's a problem. Mm -hmm. There again, I'm probably not making any friends when I say it, but they know I feel this way, so it's not a secret. Uh, I, I think we have to think about that and, and, and we have to, you know, institutions can't just pay more today and then go back into wage stagnation. And so 10 years from now, we're back to student affairs being the poorest paid cousin. Mm -hmm. This work is important. It needs to be valued and we need to lean on higher education institutions to pay and create working conditions that say to student affairs people, your work is important and it's valued. The answer is not, 
in my opinion, to de-skill the profession and say, oh, now you don't have to have master's degree, so it's okay if we pay you 35K. We're not going to change the expectations of what you're going to do. We just, won't, we just won't put master's degree on the job application. That doesn't solve a problem. So those are some of the things that I guess I'm kicking cans and turning over rocks for people who, who will live after I live. I'm sorry about that, but that's the kind of stuff that I think is coming down the road. Well, and it's it's so dangerous and short-sighted not to be talking about it. I mean, just because it's uncomfortable or, you know, we wish things were different, um, we get ourselves in trouble when we talk less rather than having more dialogue about things. So, well, I I appreciate this a lot. I mean, I fully expected to leave this episode with more things to think about than, okay, here's the answer to this. And now we don't have to think about it anymore. Um, that's, that's not the nature of our work. It's not the nature of um, human beings. So I have really enjoyed the conversation. My most important question is what else should I have asked or what else would you like to talk about? Um, kind of as we move into the wrap up. Do you want to go first? Yeah, you know, I think we we had, well, we kept you way over time, Michelle. So thank you. No, 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 you're good. For inviting us and, and make, excuse me, making space for us to have conversation with you. And obviously we're excited about the book. So thanks for letting us um, share. Um, you know, the only thing I want to end with is just a huge, huge shout out to all the authors uh, for their time for their wisdom, um, for bringing in new ways of thinking. Um, we're just, they were such a fun group to work with. And um, some of them, like George said, included people we've known for decades and others are brand new um, to, to our networks. And um, just a big, big thank you to all of the contributing authors. Great. I, I would echo the thanks to the contributing authors in the fifth edition, but all the editions. Y'all have made a difference. It, I realize the rewards are not always there. And so thank you so much. The other thing or another thing that I will say is, uh, please, I'll repeat, please consider if, if you're interested, let let certainly let Judy know. You can let me know, but I'm going to tell Judy. Um, so, you know, let us know if, if, if you have feedback, if you want to think about writing, I mean, and, 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 you know, there's some time before the next edition. So if you're like, I, I know I want to do this, but I'm not sure I know how to write yet. Hey, that's something I'm happy. I'll help anybody, anybody who wants to try to get published, who wants to learn how to write for stuff. I'm always happy to talk to people about that. And I guess the last thing I'll say is, is um, I'm really hopeful. And I know sometimes that sounds a little bit daft, right? But I am hopeful. And, and the reason I'm hopeful is students. Students are always the best part of what we do, but students have led in my lifetime, and I think before my lifetime, every great social change movement. Students have led it. They've been at the front of it. And the students I meet every day, undergrad and grad, the students I talk to on campus, and when I visit other campuses, those students give me great hope. I don't know all of the answers. I'm not even sure I know all of the questions, 
but I am sure that our students are are on top of things and that they're going to help us have a better world. And I, I, you know, I realize we kind of screwed some things up for them and, <laughs> you know, they have to fix some things, but I, I am really hopeful and confident. They're, they get it. And, you know, will, will I always like the answers? Maybe not, but, but I, I really do believe in them. And so that, that's, I guess that's the note I would want to leave the conversation on is a hopeful note and the hope comes from students. I, uh, I have a conversation at least for the last three or four years in late July and I'm just cranky, you know, and I'm like, I don't even know if I like this job anymore. And my partner will always say, it's been too long since you've been around students. And I'm like, I don't think that's, you know, I just want to be cranky. But as soon as they're back, as soon as I'm engaging with them regularly, it's like, yeah, that is, that is it. So I love that to sort of be talking about a resource for them, but to acknowledge they in so many ways lead the way, right? In in our work, in our world. Um, I love that. Well, and, and my closing question, my wrap-up question is, what's giving you hope right now? So if if you want to say, I already told you, Michelle, I just said students, weren't you listening? I, I can receive that. But if there are other things, you know, whether it's work-related, connected to the book, or life outside of of the work that you've been doing and what we've been talking about, if you each have something that you'd like to share about what does give you hope right now. I'll go first and leave Judy the final word. She's always better at that. Um I will, uh, so students, right? Uh, And I will say thank you. We thanked all the contributing authors. I also want to be sure over the 30 something odd years I've been working on the book, thank you to all the readers and the students who've read the book and the faculty who've read the book, the reader, that's why there's a book, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I guess, you know, just, you know, I hope the Chicago Cubs will win the World Series. (laughs) <laughs> I hope there's another I hope there's another edition of Game of Thrones uh, you know these are the things I hope for uh, I'd really like somebody to invent entirely sugar free and healthy chocolate these are my hopes uh, and with that I defer to my colleague Dr. Dr. Marquez Kiama who probably has much more thoughtful answers <laughs> this is why I love this partnership because I, I don't think there's been one meeting that we've had where we're not laughing. Um, you know, I, I I love that you both brought up students. I have I have so appreciated this role, this this vice associate vice provost role where I get to work with faculty across the institution and learn so much from them. But one of the main reasons I'm going back to a faculty role is because I miss teaching. I miss it's like it's like the best jolt of energy to be in a classroom with students and 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 especially when they get to like lead the conversations and it's just i it's the best high ever i love i love working with students and so i'm i'm so excited to go back and um but i think i think one of the things that has come out of the pandemic is that we are 
much more comfortable, or at least the communities that I have tried to be part of, much more comfortable talking about how we care for one another and bringing words like love and care and community and solidarity into higher education conversations where maybe it's been a little bit more, um, I don't know, taboo to have a to have a space where we're actually talking about gratitude and how people have impacted you and how much you care for them. And um, I would much rather have those conversations um, and be in those spaces where, um, where we know that there are issues. Of course, there's always gonna be, and we're always tackling something, but we're doing it in a way that we are um, truly taking care of one another. So for me, that's that's hopeful uh, and that we're recognizing that. And maybe it took a pandemic to kind of shift some of those conversations. Yeah. We, we really did learn some good lessons if we just put them into practice from the pandemic. So, well, thank you both again. I know time is a limited resource and this has really been a pleasure to learn about the process and the content and um, all the best as I think probably the big rollout for the book is about to happen in what a month and a half. Right. So, um, but excited to learn more if you decide, Hey, you know what, we should have a follow-up conversation. Let me know. We'll set it up. But um, thank, thank you to the two of you for your time today, but definitely thank you for all the work and, time and patience that went into the process. So lots of gratitude from here. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. So thank you one more time. I really enjoyed the conversation today. Today's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by SAXA. We thank them for their support. Don't forget that the SAXA conference will be happening this year from November 4th through 6th in Atlanta, Georgia. Check out the SAXA website for more information, and we hope to see you there. As we close, I'd like to leave you, as always, with a quote today from Elie Wiesel. There's divine beauty in learning. To learn means to accept the postulate that life did not begin at my birth. Others have been here before me, and I walk in their footsteps. My name is Michelle Botcher. It has been a pleasure to host this episode, and have a beautiful day.